Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source code in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why isn't my code compiling, et cetera, et cetera. Today, we have a few panelists. We have the illustrious but also hairless Eric Perry. Hey, y'all. We have Justin. Good morning, everyone, or good night, whatever it is. <laughs> we have Pia. Hello, friends. And we have me, hi, and then we have a guest on today, like usual, one hopes. We have Patrick Masson, who's joining us from Albany, New York. Patrick, how are you doing today? I am good. I'm also just, uh, shout out to Eric there, you know, I'm also the hairless uh, guest. So. We're I'm sorry. slowly it, taking over the world. Exactly. He normally has hair, so it's, it's, it's just a thing, but I apologize for bringing that up. Now I feel guilty. I'll shave my head later in recompense. Um, in solidarity. In solidarity, yeah. So, Patrick, you work with the OSI. Tell us a bit more about that. So I work as the general manager. I am the first and sole full-time employee. Uh, I started back in 2013. And in that role, I primarily oversee the day-to-day operations and sort of long-term strategic planning and, and implementation of the board. I serve it for the board. And the OSI board is made up of 10 volunteers who generously contribute their time. The board is elected by our individual membership and our affiliate memberships. So, and then I serve on the board as well as ex officio member. That's pretty it. Much it. We had Josh on the show before. Josh is also with the OSI, right? So you two work together? Yes, Josh is currently the vice president of the board. Uh, I think this is his third term. So we have the affiliate members elect board members who serve three-year terms. And the individual members elect board members that serve for two years terms. And both can serve as a maximum of six. So Josh might be terming out this last term. It will be his fifth and sixth year. So sadly... We will lose Josh. Josh has been fantastic for the board, both internally and externally. He's a great guy. He does awesome work. I mean, all the board, again, they're volunteers. So, you know, they all have full-time jobs and pretty damn impressive full-time jobs. And the fact that they can somehow find a few hours to contribute to the OSI and our work is, I'm eternally grateful. It, it makes my job so much easier to have a crew like that. So the OSI you- is, is volunteer-run but you also have a lot of governance set up. Can you talk more about the history, how it started, how long it's been going, and what your main things are that you do? Sure. The OSI began in 1998 after what's typically called a strategy session resulting from Netscape's release of the communicator browser code, which might be ancient history to several listeners. But the group got together in order to try to sort of capture and expand on the interest 
and the opportunity that Netscape provided in increasing at the time free software. So all the group really were free software developers, free software hackers who, who got together. And one of the key reasons to get together was actually the label free software. And there was a lot of confusion with free versus no cost and free versus liberty or, or libre. And the idea was to make the development concept and software freedom more palatable to business folks who, if they were selling software, probably didn't want somebody to walk in and say, hey, it should all be free. And then they think cost. Or it had a context of beyond just the technology, broader personal freedoms and things like, again, which a lot of companies may not have been too interested in getting into. So the term open source was coined. Well, technically, the term open source software was coined. Open source, the label had been around before that. It dates back from the earliest I could find is, I don't know, if this is all too much nerd history, you can edit this. No, this is out. great. This is great. But you can actually go find open source intelligence as a, re- as a reference to World War II. And, and apparently, the US military and British military would use sort of publicly available information to assess the success, which is sort of a strange word to say, success in their bombing campaign. So as the price of oranges went up or, or the lack of other staples that were delivered via train or roads, they could determine whether or not they had bombed the bridge or something like that. So this open source intelligence was the idea of publicly available information. So Christine Peterson, who was with the Foresight Foundation, actually suggested the term open source and applying it to software, again, making the connection between publicly available and accessible information to the source code. And it was really a marketing campaign, again, to try to capture the momentum of the Netscape communicator release and tailor a message that would be more palatable to business so they could engage with open source. Soon after that, that was in February of 98, within a couple of weeks, Bruce Perrins then suggested the use of the Debian free software guidelines as the initial template for the open source definition. The goal was to create a a standard, if you will, around software licensing processes that we could sort of stamp a certification that said that if you met these 10, oh, at the time it was nine, nine guidelines, then the license would be labeled open source, guaranteeing permission first or software freedom to use that software. And that was adopted. And the first license was the then Netscape public license, which now is the Mozilla public license, but also existing licenses like the GPL family of licenses and the BSD and and those sorts of licenses. So that was the idea. You know, if we could, we could guarantee software freedom through licensing, we could cultivate the community of collaboration uh, around software development and open source would be successful. And in some way, I think that helped in where we are today because it seems to be open source is pretty successful. That's awesome. I didn't know at all about the war. That is super cool. The price of oranges. Everything seems to start with oranges. No, it doesn't. But certainly war. Um, Actually, yeah. it's A lot of innovation usually comes from war. I mean, I'm not advocating it, but it's that when you said that, I was like, really? I was like, that's, that's a cool fact. I mean, I know a lot of linguistic stuff, like NLP stuff came out of MIT, which came directly out of like, you know, DOD funding. So it's also kind of similar. You mentioned this phrase at the end, building uh, communities of collaborative contributors, basically, which I think is something you're focused on very heavily at the OSI, right? You sort of 
alludes to that already with their 10 volunteers who are collaborating openly. And that's, that's volunteers is like, that's awesome work. That's God's work, right? Can you talk more about communities of collaborative contributors? <laughs> sure. I'll step back a little bit, touching again on the history of the OSI. When the OSI first started up, it was really about validating the collaborative network effect of many eyeballs, right? The, the, the Linus's law, many eyeballs make all bugs shallow or something along those lines. And there was this perception by, and if people could see my air quotes, I have them up now, by professional developers, that open source software and community-driven development was amateur work. It was hackers in the basement. It, it wasn't deemed high quality. And in fact, that was often used by companies or organizations as a lever or to, to sort of cast doubt or fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD into open source communities. Like, oh, that can't be that good. It was built by a bunch of wackos in the basement and they weren't even paid. How could that be as good as our slick cellophane wrapped in the box on the shelf software? And there are other issues around, well, who do you call? There's no support. Security, if anybody can see the code, then it's going to be more insecure. So there are all of these sorts of things. So the OSI really focused at the beginning on addressing those, building confidence within communities to actually form and self-organize and, and create the software. And that was really the first 10 years until I think Wired Magazine in 2012 had a, I don't know if there's a cover, but it says Open Source One. So I guess that makes it legit at that point. And shift in that second decade was really around how to help projects form and create communities. What do they need to do? How do they, and not so much prescriptive or, or, you know, direction and this is the right way, but to share the variety of ways that communities can form to meet their needs, offer their contributors, whatever it is they're looking for, the advantages that that community might offer. And so that really became the focus how to form, create, maintain communities. And now today, with the growth of communities, the OSI's works really around, I haven't thought of a better word, because this is sort of, sounds like accusational, but authenticity within communities. How does both the community and those looking at the community determine the authenticity or honesty or, or even just practices of those communities? So you can think about a, an individual. I'm some developer who... who is working on a technology or a tool or for some reason is motivated to join a community. How do I assess that community to understand how it behaves, its organizational structure, the roles that might be open for me, even cultural things, how to, how to comment without getting yelled at or you know, what the bug reporting process is like or what the conferences or meetings or all those sorts of things. And then how do I ensure that those are aligned with whatever my expectations, values, assumptions are for what a, quote, open source software community might be like. So that's one perspective. And then just importantly is, is looking at communities and authenticity within the organization. So how, if I'm part of a project already, how do I ensure that that person coming in to visit discovers those things, can assess those things, and feels confident in joining? So that's today where we're, we're really working on, because we're definitely seeing all sorts of activities and behaviors out there and organizations that are, that are practicing some, what I think personally and what the OSI has recognized as some pretty disingenuous activity 
trying to capture on the success of open source, leverage that success to further their own, perhaps not too openy goals. I think, I think you call it open washing. Right. So that's one term. We actually, we have four terms now that shows the complexity of this issue is that we're creating a larger and larger vocabulary to describe the nuance of each nefarious actor. The open washing is really, Michelle Thune came up with, that's the first reference I found of it. Audrey Waters also references it. It's really a marketing scheme. So the idea with open washing is to associate yourself with the ideals, the ethos, the practices, the language, the messaging of free and open source software in order to capture customers, gain audience, traction, media attention, whatever it might be. And there's some pretty gross examples, gross in both ugly and gross as in large examples of this. Like? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Let's oh, not come do that. On. But Thank the- you, Justin. <laughs> no, come on. Come on. We got to have some... No, no, no. What is an example? Like what recently... You know, I know Chris Anishak on Twitter was ranting about a company that's... I don't even remember, or nor do I want to promote. Maybe it's not a good idea to promote them. I, I guess... I guess I understand where you're coming from. You know, this also ties into a lot of criticism the OSI gets. If you look on our website, I think the quote is, we're the pragmatic organization and that, and that a lot of the work we do is, is when an issue comes up, we reach out to the organization, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, that ad that you have about your new open source tool, is, it's not open source, it's not using an open source license, it's not or, you know, whatever it might be. That's our first step is to, because honestly, in a lot of these, so the, it, it's not even the, the case that maybe I came down too harsh initially here because without a doubt, the majority of people we contact are unbelievably excited about, very engaged with, and motivated by open source software. And they simply may not have the, they've grown up with it and I don't mean that in an age thing. I mean that in a sense of their whole career has been open source is the default. You know, if we want to say, look, you know, the OSI was super successful and by 2000, everyone was using open source or aware of it. And that's 20 years of people using open source. So if it's the default now, I can appreciate that many folks may not have the nuanced, you know, because there isn't anything much more exciting than intellectual property and licensing developers. So I, you know, I, I, while I'm mystified that they're not, they're not fully engaged in this, I can understand that they aren't. And so their misuse of the open source label or misapplication of licenses or whatever it might be, without a doubt, is more often related to just a, a simple error that gets addressed. And they're super excited to announce their new project. So they tweet about it. They get on a couple podcasts, they do a blog post about it, and they're just like, hey, everyone, this is awesome. Look at this work we all did. It's open source. Anyone can participate. Please join us. And then you get in there, it's like, oh, like there's no license attached to it at all. Or, oh, it's actually, they took the MIT license and they added a bunch of stuff to it. And even the stuff that they're adding isn't you know, an attempt to do anything tricky. It's just things that they might think are important. They're calling it the MIT license, but it's really been changed. So it's not the MIT license anymore. And will the next person coming along read further down than just the header that says MIT license? So we reach out to those folks because there's no reason to rake them over the coals. It's just, 
you know, it's an educational opportunity. And if they can be someone who understands, and even if they come back and say, oh, now that I know what open source is, I want nothing to do with it. At least now everyone's aware and they can help the next person make a better decision. I think it's also more complicated than that as well. Like, like a lot of the people you talk to are probably people who know about open source because you have champions within larger organizations who really try to make it work. And then they often don't have the ability to turn like the C-suite to really appreciate open source, right? And so you often have a developer or uh, a CTO who's all gung-ho for it. And then they have top-down strictures that basically they can't open source. They can only do so much or they announce something and then turns out, you know, all the like issues have to be on Jira and you have to sign a CLA or something. And then it ends up being really hard for people to contribute, even though the license might even be MIT, right? It's really, really tough. And so it's, it's a bit more nuanced. And that all has been said, there are still bad actors, right? <laughs> I mean, I've been approached by a very large telecom that I can't name legally to build out an open source like OSPO for them. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not doing that because it's, it's not authentic, right? I wouldn't be authentic doing that. I'm not sure your heart's in the right place. So yeah, that's, that's right. I think there's a lot of nuance there. And I'm starting with a clear statement that the majority of people, totally clear statement that the majority of people are just excited open source enthusiasts who maybe got a little bad information somewhere. And then the next level are, we say, okay, we've contacted them and they want to argue. Then it gets a little more formal. But again, the power is really derived from the community. So that's why we have our OSI affiliate membership and our individual members and even our sponsors, because there's nothing, maybe not more powerful, but there's nothing perhaps as persuasive as having a list of organizations that all agree that this is what open source is. This is the open source definition. So you can go and say, like the whole industry agrees that it's a defined term. There's a definition. There's a process calling us something open source software conveys this message. So please help us in maintaining that and ensuring that there's that continuity within the community. So just because I can't, I can't not say it. I disagree with that. And that's just my personal opinion. Yes, there is an open source definition. And yes, it comes from the OSI and the OSI is able to say things, but OSI doesn't own open source. No, we don't. No. We don't. Okay. Open source is... I, I really, never... I talked to Josh about that a lot. And so I want to make sure that I also mention it to you because otherwise it's just kind of silly. So the, lay, the term open source can never be trademarked. When the OSI first started, there's some history about approaching the U.S. Patent Trademark Office about trying to trademark the term open source. You know, like, like I said, open source intelligence, open source hardware, there's an open source washing machine initiative, there's open source COLA. There's open source music, there's open source, you know, so open source as a adjective, hyphenated adjective definitely exists um, all over the place. What we do is we say, if you're going to call yourself open source software, that is a term of art that the industry recognizes as something, right? If you say open source software, just like free software, obviously there's an issue around free software. That's a term that could never be because I just gave you some software that's free as a no cost software. But what we do is we recognize, again, by going to the community and saying, like, everyone agrees this. We have, when people become affiliate members, or not people, but um, organizations, we ask them to sign an affiliate agreement. And in that, it says that they agree that open source software is software distributed with an OSI-approved license. And the OSI-approved license review process uses the open source definition as the criteria for approving that. And that way we can ensure software freedom, the expectations of the community around software freedom are met when delivering that software. 
It's about software freedom. It's about permission first. The confidence that users, adopters have in taking a piece of software and knowing they have permission first to use, modify, redistribute that software. I don't have to go negotiate a contract with someone. I know because I just see the words open source software and an OSI approved license, you know, pick one of the 80. And then I have that confidence. And by introducing ambiguity there, you're actually stymie innovation. I now don't really know. Okay, we all call it open source. It's my open source code. It's my open source uh, project. It's my open source, you know, what does that mean? Because if we can all use the label in any way we want, basically it becomes like green, like green. This is a green building. This is you know, organic. This is, you know, there needs to be some sort of, if not federally or government regulation, there's some, some sort of community agreement around what these terms mean. And right now, open source software is agreed by the community to mean software distributed with an OSI approved license. So I have a question. I think that one, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the OSI mission is how using startup licenses and open source definition to enable the sustainability of our community, right? And um, at the same time, there's been some friction lately, I want to say, with groups or other projects trying to use different open source licenses in the name of creating better sustainability opportunities for open source. Can you comment a little bit about that? So this is a perfect example of the ambiguity that can arise around sort of labeling. So I understand the question is people are using open source licenses, I would say open source software licenses, to develop sustainable models for their project. Yeah. So if that's the case, I, in my head, I think, oh, they're using OSI approved licenses and that's fostering sustainability within their project. You might be asking if people are using non-OSI approved licenses as a way to introduce other sustainability models into their project. And I think that's true too. So I think there are ways to engage authentically or within community norms or whatever we want to say with open source software licenses to increase sustainability. And I also think that, of course, there's the extreme example of using a non-OSI approved software license to maintain sustainability is make it proprietary software. So somewhere in between there is that, that sort of range. I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm just, I guess I'm highlighting that the issue of ambiguity that can arise from unclear labels. Yeah, and also the, I think you are answering in the sense that it's unclear how we reach like sustainability as a goal. It's also the complexity of achieving that and the ways that we get to having sustainability of the open source community and how do we get there and how do maybe some paths that might make communities sustainable might also not be, as you were saying, it's ambiguous, right? Like it it might not be fostering the like OSI approved licenses path and, and what does that mean and what do we do with that? And how we navigate also that complexity in our community. Right. So 
the commons clause is a perfect example of maybe where you're going. It's like, okay, they took the Apache or Redis took the Apache license out of the commons clause to it. And the Apache license is still open source, but the clause effectively made the project not open source. But to be fair, also, Heather Meeker clearly states on there that the commons clause is not an open source license. So that could be an approach somewhere in that, on the spectrum there around what is open source and the ambiguity that's, that I was just talking about. And that's somewhere on that spectrum of using licensing for sustainability, because I'm sure the folks that are using the common clause would say, well, one way to promote sustainability, maybe not insure it, but promote it is to add restrictions on use requiring. So that's one model. Please don't call it open source software is all we would say. Right. Um, is, this, is this what you were uh, referring to when you, when you um, said that you wanted to discuss this idea of avoiding the business model trap of sustainability? <laughs> yeah, so get your quote button ready here because I really think open source will take off once all the software companies are gone, right? So <laughs> <laughs> That's totally true. <laughs> so a little professional background is in higher ed. I was the CIO in the SUNY system and CTO at the UMass, University of Massachusetts. Interestingly, if you look again in the dark ages of open source, a lot of it came out of universities, higher education, right? There's a lot of collaborative work between institutions of higher education around software. And that still occurs today. And in large institutions, especially like SUNY and UMass, uh, SUNY is the State University of New York and it's 64 campuses. UMass is five campuses, but it also has a partnership with the state, what are called state universities as well, state colleges and universities. And I think it's total 17 and even some community colleges. And so the idea in that environment is all about developing consortia around shared needs. The primary delivery of higher ed is education and research, not software development. Software is something that enables those two things. So there's no value differentiator. And in fact, it's a waste of everyone's time if we all develop different tools to, to, and then we can't collaborate across universities and departments and, and so on. So there's a real recognition that, oh, we should all be developing these tools together. They should be licensed in a way that ensures the most number of people can work on them and we all benefit through their use. And in a commercial world, I would say, how many people walk into Walmart and before they buy their ceiling fan or, you know, whatever you, whatever they're buying, chair, lawn chairs at, or snow shovels, do they walk up and say, hey, 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 before I buy this, what ERP system are you using? You know, how are you managing your vacation and payroll? What inventory software are you running? Nobody cares about that. That's all non-differentiating. Nobody picks where they're shopping based on those systems. So the real value of open source, I think, can be maximized as a collaborative process through organizations that are devoting internal infrastructure and resources to develop open source software because they all need it anyway. And there's a cost benefit to collaboration. And there's even benefits around standardization, right? Can we all agree on standards associated with SKU numbers, you know, the inventory numbers and, and vacation and payroll and how we send information to regulatory bodies or or whatever it might be that's key to their industry, they're the best case, if you're going to scratch your personal itch, they're the best organizations to identify the issues, identify the solutions, and build the tools. So for me, I would rather be engaged with an open source project that's built by the people that are actually hands-on in real life using this than 
go out to a third party vendor, even if it's open source software, who's developing it against and sort of those requirements, but with other motives, which are totally understandable around profit and really customer capture and a lot of other issues. Right? And all of those things are gone when you have a community, a consortium of collaborators around shared interests. So that's, you know, purposefully, I think that statement raises some eyebrows. Open source software will really take off once all the software companies are gone. And instead, if we have organizations that are investing significantly in open source development through hiring qualified people to run projects, there's no reason a, an open source project right now that's serving multiple companies or organizations within an industry or sector, why can't that be adopted as a part of the company or supported specifically for that niche market? So that's sort of what that means. What about that? I always hear this, 98% of companies use open source software. Where did that come from? Is it true? Like I can say, take an educated guess and go, yes, that's true. Maybe it's 99%, but who's behind that? Well, the specific number 98, the last time I saw in a quote that I've used or where I've quoted it from was from the Linux Foundation New Stack to Do Group Open Source Program Office Survey, the 2019 and 2020. So I'll give you that link that you can add it uh, in there. I've seen it also as sort of another, maybe this is sort of an open washing tactic often used by those who are selling software auditing services. Because they obviously want to say that everyone's using open source, but they don't know what they're using. So you better watch out and hire us to make sure that you're not having you know, issues with your security or license compatibility. Danger, danger. We can solve it for you, though. Open source is great, but it's dangerous. Let us help you. So back when I started CodeFund, I did a bunch of research on this. And I did one of the uh, studies that I used to reference often is, was done by Black Duck Software with the Northbridge survey done in 1915. I can find the source for that as well. But yeah, there's a lot of data, a lot of studies to back up those numbers. If you want, I can roll off some exciting stats here. 96% of applications include open source and or free software components with an average of 257 components per application. That's from a 2018 open source security and risk analysis report from Synopsys Center for Open Source Research. Uh, the same report also says an average percentage of code base that is open source or free software is 57% in 2018 as compared to 36% in 2017. There's the Northbridge survey that uh, Eric just mentioned. There's Red Hat's State of the Open Source 2019 report that says change in enterprise open source over the past 12 months has increased 68% with another 29%. Those are all enterprise, right? Those aren't. So military is being ignored because we can't actually look at those without having <laughs> clearance. And that's a huge amount of software, right? Right. Like Lockheed Martin probably has massive amount of data centers that we just don't know about. That's, that's a great point. I often, when speaking with people about security, point to the U.S. Department of Defense CTO's office, which published a fact on their use of open source software. Um, if people are interested in that, I can drop the link, give the link to you that as well. But it's also highlights that they actually, I don't want to overstate it and I don't have it in front of me, but they acknowledge the significance in the use of open source software to enable DOD and U.S. military. And I always end it with something like, I I guess the U.S. military is probably pretty uptight about security. So I always use that one as an example. What gives you that assumption? Just joking. Bad joke. (laughs) joke. But they're also not the only military, right? So it's just... 
it's uh, I, I love seeing these reports because they're always like assuming like out of everything we surveyed, you know, it's kind of like we called 50 people in Iowa and this is what the primary is going to be. It's like, great, but, but we don't know until they go to the polls. Sure. And I think it's important to look at those stats. Like I said, with the synopsis survey, they offer software auditing. So I would guess that they have a marketing interest in touting the, the adoption of open source and thus the need for their services. Red Hat, that the, one of the quotes in there was from Red Hat. They're obviously interested in alleviating any anxiety that the C-level folks might have in adopting open source software. So I'm not ignorant or I'm not ignoring, I might, I'm very ignorant, so, but I'm not ignoring the motivations behind these surveys a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, just anecdotally, I've definitely gone up to, you know, my godparents and said, you use open source. What phone do you have? There's open source in that, right? So that's really easy marketing tactic. I don't know. Like if you have an iPhone or an Android, you're, you're using open source software somewhere down the line. Yeah, I teach at SUNY Albany, computer science course on principles and practices of open source. And I always ask the students the first day to take their phones out and scroll, tap to the licensing pages. I ask them who uses open source software. And you're exactly right. They think, oh, I'm running Mac or I'm running Windows. I don't have open source software. I'm you know, using Office or whatever. And then you slowly begin to introduce the idea that open source is everywhere and they're using it. I just want to add one thing. You brought up the Walmart analogy where, you know, who cares what people use on the back end? I'll tell you, there's one person on this world that cares and his name's Richard Stallman. Just had to bring that out. Oh, don't get me wrong. I want all software to be open source software. I wouldn't be working where I am if I didn't. My point was really, I mean, you could even say, do I care whether you're using, even if you're using open source software, there might be multiple examples of open source. When I was in higher ed, one of the favorite things to do is constantly you know, reflect on the teaching and learning tools that, that, that are available. So online learning now is definitely in the headlines due to the current COVID crisis. But for years, it was something that was not really appreciated or of interest of, for traditional faculty. So we have these things called learning management systems in higher ed. And they're essentially where students can go take online classes. And again, we're seeing this today with the COVID where students in high schools and colleges are taking a lot of their classes online. But the point is, is we'd go through these RFP processes or where we'd have to buy or recontract with the learning management system providers. And there are big companies like Blackboard and other companies like that that provide these systems. And they're often proprietary. And I would make that same point that when students apply to a university, they're applying because the major fits their career goals. Um, they like the football team, you know, all sorts of reasons. Their parents went there. Their friends are going there. Who knows? But nobody ever goes to a university based on the email system that they're using. And they're not going to a university based on the learning management system they're using. This is just like what handles are installed on the doors when they walk into the dorms. Nobody cares, right? right. So if they're not really adding any value differentiation to the educational experience, then, you know, what's really important is just the core features and then other things like cost and support and things like that. And when you look at that, open source becomes a great option. And why aren't we including uh, open source in our procurement processes that allow for us to discover these and use these things? And then when you get to that point, it's like, well, to your point, Justin, around having everything Richard Stallman want to be, I think he'd want everything to be free software, not open source. He'd want, he'd want everything to be free and open. And the OSI wants everything to be free or open. That's great. 
So why do we have so many open source options? When I was in higher ed, I looked and there were over 200 open source learning management systems. So why do we need 200 open source management systems? We need to have more joiners of projects than starters of projects. And so again, there's, there's no real reason to differentiate any of these. There might be differences around technology, platform, development, things like that, that necessitate, okay, this is a Java, this is in PHP. So Moodle's in PHP, Sakai's in Java. So you have different developer communities that might gravitate around different technologies and things like that. So that's understood. You might have different pedagogical models. So some people have a constructivist sort of group model, some people more of a just straight delivery of lecture format, sort of like the edX and things like that, where you just watch the video and then answer questions. So those might all be reasons to have some, but you don't need 200 of them. And so, so when I'm in Walmart, I'm hoping that they have an open source ERP system that's recognized as a standard that all retail is using, right? And just think of the efficiencies that can happen at that point, both in the development of the software and the distribution and use of the software. So that's where I was going. Um, can I go back one second to the comment before about the um, business model trap? Because <laughs> sure. I just want to make sure, sorry, <laughs> I know. I just want to make sure that I understand your, the point you're making. So in your mind, I guess, like the way or a path to the sustainability of these projects would be if companies are hiring folks to work on these projects, projects that serve many companies. Is that what I understood that correctly? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's one option. I think the trap is you have a startup, somebody's got a project that they're really invested in getting attention and adoption, sort of growing, you know, you always hear this sort of classic, this might be a fable. I don't know if this actually happens anymore, but you know, with a sort of person who started this just to solve their own problem and then it grows, it grows, it grows. And pretty soon they're bogged down with more work than they can handle and more responsibility than they ever wanted. And people are clamoring to get things done and they just don't have the time to do it. So that's where the sustainability thing comes on. And then they're like, okay, well, how can we do this? So the business model trap is, well, I guess I can just sell this, right? Like somehow, right. and what we end up with is like sort of the open core business model. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like, all right, well, yeah. we'll have this core technology, but then we'll sell bolted on tools around it. Right. So, so that's But sort don't of you one. think that, yeah. I understand that, but like in my, I guess in my mind, it's making noise with other statements that I know you believe in and that we were discussing, like having, you know, more, joiners than starters, right? And having like more diverse communities that are more resilient and more open, right? If the way to join an open source project in a way that is sustainable is just being hired by a company to work on that project, how how is that growing the diversity in our communities? How is that opening the door for more joiners instead of, you know, just a few that can be part of those companies? So I think just like you would look at an open source project to assess its authenticity. And I don't think I've talked about maturity models, but if you look at a project to assess its open source maturity, I'll put that in air quotes too, you can use that assessment for the company. And it, it shouldn't be like any other choice that you make to join an open source project or a company on whether or not that company or that project, and you can swap those terms, aligns with the values, the direction, the opportunities that you think are important for your personal life and career. 
I would hold that as a test, I would say. And then the question then becomes, how are software projects, whether they're within companies or governments or higher ed or foundations or individuals who are maintaining them, how are they both cultivating that community in the sense of enabling the diverse environments, the everyone can participate in whatever area they're interested in? How are they enabling that? And if it doesn't meet my needs, even if I'm interested in the project, I'm not going to participate. I may fork it if I really need it. But I think that's the standard that we should apply to the companies. If we're going to challenge companies and ask them to actively participate through dollars and donations and code contributions to projects, why can't we challenge them to behave more like we expect? That should be a standard that we we hold them to. I have so much more to talk to you about this, but I think... <laughs> I also do too. Um, me too. We shared once, me too. Yeah. No, that's about the time we have, unfortunately. Thank you so much, Patrick. Where sure. can people reach you online to ask you hard questions? You can uh, email me at masson at opensource.org. I have a Twitter account, but you know, I'm not a big Twitterer. Just, that's probably a good uh, thing. At MassonPJ. <laughs> You can drop a line into the contact form on the OSI website. You can come by my house at 3 Tanglewood Boulevard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know I people like, who have done that. Are you that. crazy? <laughs> I know people who have done that. That's great. I actually, I think I did idea. that in the first episode. All right. Thank you so much. Now it's time for Spotlight, where we basically highlight projects that we think are awesome and that need more light shed on them. Justin, what do you got for us? I just got to say... Show HN is the reason I know about the OSI. I had a project that used the OSI logo and someone on Hacker News said, dude, you cannot use that logo. And I looked into it. And I was like, and that's the day I became a member. And seven years later, here we are talking to Patrick. So Show HN, not that it needs more publicity. I just say there's a lot of great information on there and it could change your life. Eric, what do you got? For me, I think the, the thing I want to call out today is a piece of hardware that I recently got. It's a repurposed the Dell Precision T7610. And this thing is a screamer. I've migrated completely from Mac to PC with the new Windows Ubuntu WSL2. Anyway, for anybody who is wanting to not pay the Apple tax and still be a highly functional software developer. I think Windows is there now. So I'm pretty excited about it. Awesome. Pia. So I have for you today a project called Open Mind. It's in openmind.org. The Open Mind is giving right now free open source support for everyone out there doing a COVID-19 app to help them protect the user's data privacy properly. And so if you are one of those amazing developers who are helping in the COVID relief efforts, ask OpenMind for help when it comes to the user's privacy management. Thank you. Thank you so much. My project this week is D3. The D3 is awesome. It's a really awesome graphing just everything. I had really a lot of fun last weekend's building a tool that would help me visualize what birds I've seen within a 10 mile radius of my house. And this was totally possible due to D3 and like highly suggested, super fun to hack with. Yeah, it's the best. 
All right. Patrick, what do you have today? Well, I will offer, considering my education background, Floss Desktops for Kids. It's a program that takes decommissioned hardware and puts it in the hands of underserved districts and the kids there. They rebuild machines and install nothing but open source software. And for many of these districts, it's really the only way to get computers into the hands of their students. They can't afford sort of the iPad initiative or the Chromebook initiatives. And the thing I like most about it, in addition to that aspect, is that it's working to find and create a network of similar projects, again, tying to the idea of more joiners and fewer starters. And if the Floss Desktops for Kids curriculum and activities completely go away because another project is doing it better. That's okay with them. So I, I like that attitude. I love that too. Everyone, go join the OSI if you haven't already. Patrick, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This whole Sustain group is fantastic. You guys are doing great work. Very honored to be invited to speak with you. And I only wish you all the best. Thanks so much. Thanks all. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.